Welcome to the December 28th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. On today's podcast, uncovering the clinical and pathological profile of a new disorder similar to VIT, or vaccine-induced thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. These patients had a VIT-like disorder despite no recent exposure to vaccines or heparin. Up next, real-world outcomes in patients with large B-cell lymphoma treated with tafacitumab and lenalidomide. Compared to patients in the registrational clinical trial, these patients had more comorbidities, higher-risk disease, and ultimately lower rates of overall and progression-free survival. Finally, advances in technology help unravel the spatial biology of bone marrow. Investigators uncover age-related changes in human bone marrow based on multi-parameter whole tissue staining, single-cell resolution imaging, and artificial intelligence-based analysis. Let's go to our first research article, Anti-PF4 Immunothrombosis Without Proximate Heparin or Adenovirus Vector Vaccine Exposure. The first author is Linda Schonborn from Griefswald University Hospital in Griefswald, Germany. Antibodies against platelet factor 4, or PF4, are known to cause prothrombotic disorders. The best known of these disorders is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT. In patients with HIT, antibodies to the anti-PF4 heparin complex are highly pathologic and strongly activate platelets. These patients typically have a drop in platelet count 5 to 10 days after heparin is started, and they may develop complications including deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. Interest in anti-PF4 antibody-related prothrombotic disorders was stimulated when such antibodies were identified as the cause of vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia, or VIT. VIT was first identified as a rare but serious consequence of adenovirus-based COVID-19 vaccines. Patients with VIT typically develop thrombocytopenia 5 to 20 days after vaccination. They have severe hypercoagulability, as shown by high D-dimer levels, and are positive for anti-PF4 antibodies. Nearly 90% of patients with VIT experience severe thrombotic complications, often with atypical presentations, such as central venous sinus thrombosis or splanchnic vein thrombosis. However, these patients may have improved outcomes if diagnosed early and treated with anticoagulation plus high-dose intravenous immunoglobulin. So that's HIT and VIT. However, there are some patients that don't fit either profile. There have been reports of a disorder that mimics HIT that develops in patients who have not had recent exposure to heparin or vaccination. This spontaneous HIT syndrome is characterized by thrombocytopenia and thrombosis, a high stroke frequency, and presence of anti-PF4 antibodies. Now, Schoenborn and co-authors describe in blood what they call a VIT-like disorder in patients who have not received an adenovirus COVID vaccine or heparin. They report on a total of nine patients who had serologic features that authors say is more akin to VIT than HIT. All patients were strongly positive on a standard chemiluminescence assay that detects anti-PF4 heparin antibodies found in HIT. However, results were negative or weakly positive on a heparin-dependent platelet activation assay, and by contrast, strongly positive on a PF4-dependent platelet activation assay. And these patients also tested positive using a novel chemiluminescence assay for anti-PF4 antibodies found in VIT. 
all patients had thrombocytopenia, with median platelet count nadir of 49 times 10 to the 9th liter. Likewise, all nine had thrombosis, including central venous sinus thrombosis in four patients and arterial stroke in three. An infection preceded the thrombotic episodes in five of the nine patients. And interestingly, the pathogen responsible for the infection in one case was adenovirus, and all patients had highly elevated D-dimer levels. Of note, three of these patients had been previously reported as having spontaneous HIT syndrome. In an exploratory cohort of sera that was obtained before 2020 from 300 patients with a mix of thrombocytopenia and thrombotic disorders, the authors identified more patients with VIT-like anti-PF4 antibodies. When previously evaluated, these patients had strongly positive results on the anti-PF4 heparin assay, but negative results on the heparin-dependent platelet activation assay. However, when investigators reassessed these patients, they identified 13 who were both positive using the novel anti-PF4 assay, and also positive by PF4-dependent platelet activation assay. The implication here is that VIT-like anti-PF4 antibodies in these patients can't be explained by the COVID-19 pandemic or exposure to COVID-19 adenovirus vector vaccines. So with this report, a VIT-like disorder has hit the headlines, so to speak. That's the title of a commentary on the findings written by Marie Scully of University College London Hospital in the UK. In the commentary, Scully says with the identification of this new condition, some hit cases unrelated to heparin exposure now fit a diagnosis of a VIT-like disorder. Important, Scully adds, is the presentation of life-threatening thrombosis, which in many cases appears to be related to recent infection. What are the clinical implications? Scully says in the commentary that while VIT-like disorder will doubtlessly be rare, its consideration is paramount. Clinicians now may need to consider the potential for platelet-activating VIT-like anti-PF4 antibodies in patients with thrombocytopenia, thrombosis, and very high D-dimer levels, even if there has been no recent exposure to heparin or adenovirus vector vaccines. And the presentations of VIT-like disorder in future cohorts will be important to obtaining a better understanding of therapy and outcomes. The next article is titled, Tafacitimab and Lenalidomide in Large B-Cell Lymphoma, Real-World Outcomes in a Multicenter Retrospective Study. The first author is David A. Qualls of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, New York. Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma, or DLBCL, is the most common lymphoma subtype. A substantial proportion of patients will either relapse or are refractory to first-line chemoimmunotherapy. Encouragingly, there have been eight accelerated FDA approvals of novel therapies specifically for relapsed refractory DLBCL since 2017. Of note, the pivotal trials leading to those approvals were based on surrogate endpoints, and only one of the trials was randomized. And there's another major question regarding these registrational trials. Are the results applicable to relevant populations in the real world? Consider the combination of tafacitimab and lenalidomide which in 2020 received accelerated FDA approval for the treatment of patients with relapsed or refractory DLBCL. The approval was based in part on L-MIND, a phase two registrational trial. In this study, the complete response rate was 43%. Median progression-free survival, or PFS, was 12.1 months, and overall survival was 33.5 months. However, the generalizability of these findings to real-world populations was not clear, in part because of the L-MIND exclusion criteria. That study excluded patients with more than three prior lines of therapy, 
prior CD19-targeted therapy or immunomodulatory drugs, primary refractory disease, high-risk cytogenetics, or ECOG performance status greater than 2. To evaluate real-world characteristics and treatment outcomes for tafacitimab plus lenalidomide, Qualys and co-investigators conducted the present multicenter retrospective study. They included patients with relapsed or refractory large B-cell lymphoma treated at 11 institutions. The primary endpoint of the study was PFS. They included a total of 178 patients, most of which would not have been eligible for the L-MIND trial. Based on all L-MIND exclusion criteria except laboratory values, 78% of the real-world patients would have been ineligible for L-MIND. When considering laboratory values, 89% would have been ineligible. The number one exclusion factor was primary refractory disease in 37% of the real-world patients. Other exclusionary criteria were prior CAR T-cell therapy in 30% of patients four or more lines of therapy in 23%, liver function test or blood count abnormalities in 31%, and inadequate renal function in 30%. The PFS median was just 1.9 months, with a 95% confidence interval in 1.7 to 2.6 months, and the complete response rate was 19%. Interestingly, patients who would have been eligible for L-MIND, not considering laboratory values, had a significantly better progression-free survival, with a hazard ratio of 0.51, and the hazard ratio for overall survival was 0.50. In subgroup analysis, higher risks of progression were observed in patients under the age of 70, worse performance status, elevated LDH, a higher international prognostic index, three or more prior lines of therapy, prior CAR T-cell therapy, primary refractory disease, and disease that was refractory to the last therapy received. Factors significantly linked to inferior PFS in multivariate analysis included worse performance status, elevated LDH, and refractoriness to the last therapy. And interestingly, there was an independent association between patient age of 70 or higher and lower risk of progression. Lenalidomide doses were delayed in 48% of patients, and the dose of lenalidomide was reduced in 63%. However, those dose delays and reductions were not associated with inferior progression-free survival. Safety data, available for 156 patients, showed that 54% had at least one clinically significant adverse event during treatment, the most common of which were cytopenias, seen in 14% to 26% of patients. Febrile neutropenia was seen in 7% of patients. Among 108 deaths reported, 80% had lymphoma progression listed as the cause. These results illustrate the tribulations of trials in aggressive lymphoma. That's the title of a commentary on the study by Alison Baraclaw and Eliza A. Hawkes from the University of Melbourne in Australia. The commentary authors say these findings elegantly demonstrate stark discrepancies in outcomes between registration studies, where the patients are typically carefully selected and routine clinical populations without this pre-selection. And the study is not an outlier, the authors say. For example, in real-world data studies for polituzumab and CAR T-cell therapy, patients in routine care are on average less fit with more aggressive disease biology and generally worse outcomes than the patients treated in the small registrational phase 2 trials. Looking across real-world studies for relapsed or refractory DLBCL, the percentage of patients who would have been eligible for the corresponding registration studies ranges from a high of 26% to a low of 6.5%. This presents a, quote, hugely challenging, unquote, ethical dilemma when offering a novel therapy to a patient who may have been excluded from the pivotal trial. 
Yet these therapies have mostly unrestricted approvals, authors say, and they are rapidly incorporated into clinical practice guidelines, despite uncertainty over the actual benefit in such patients. Baraclaw and Hawks conclude that individualized clinical assessment is essential when interpreting registrational trial data, ensuring that clinicians accurately communicate outcomes and obtain true informed consent. However, they add, regulatory bodies and those designing trials have a responsibility to ensure studies are applicable to the majority of patients in care, not just the very fittest minority. Our final article is Spatial Mapping of Human Hematopoiesis at Single Cell Resolution Reveals Aging-Associated Topographic Remodeling. And the first author is Alexander Sarachakov of Boston Gene Corporation in Waltham, Massachusetts. We know that hematopoiesis is the lifelong process by which blood cells are continuously repopulated in bone marrow. Important to this process are so-called niches that govern the activity of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, or HSPCs. These niches, which contain HSPCs, other cellular elements, and structural co-constituents, are spatially distinct from one another in the bone marrow. Based on preclinical work, two anatomically separate niches have been clearly identified and described the endosteal niche, home to osteoblasts, and the central or vascular niche that includes most of the vessels located throughout the marrow. And other lines of evidence show that hematopoietic stem cells may be influenced by other cells in the marrow, including megakaryocytes, macrophages, and adipocytes. However, these findings are primarily based on tissue imaging studies in mice and other preclinical models. It's not clear whether or not mouse models are directly representative of what happens in human hematopoiesis. Technical challenges have been a hurdle to conducting studies of how bone marrow is organized in human tissue, and most previous studies have been small, limited, and based on visual or semi-qualitative analytic techniques. But with advances in imaging technology and computational bioinformatics, there are new opportunities to study human marrow and potentially translate those findings into treatments that address unmet medical needs. In the present study in blood, Sarah Chakov and co-investigators applied those technologies to create an integrated sequence of processing steps. This process included multi-parameter whole tissue staining of bone marrow tree-fine biopsy samples, in-situ imaging at single-cell resolution, and artificial intelligence-based analysis of digital images. Then they used this image analysis process to analyze archived pathology samples from patients with disease-free bone marrow biopsies. Their goal was to look for alterations in hematopoietic structure, and more specifically, changes that were associated with aging. The biopsy samples were stained with fluorescent immunohistochemistry for myeloid, erythroid, and megakaryocytic precursor cells. An image analysis was done primarily with convolutional neural networks, or algorithms based on deep learning that encode image features so they can be classified by histological patterns. The data by Sarah Chakov et al. indicate that the proportion of specific cell types changes with aging. The percentages of myeloblasts and proerythroblasts declined from the youngest to the oldest individuals. And conversely, percentages of non-hematopoietic elements and endothelial cells were highest in older individuals. They also found that the fat-to-cell ratio was lower in younger individuals and increased with age. They examined vascular density and morphology, finding that the density of small non-symmetrical vessels increased from the youngest to oldest subjects. 
suggesting a potential aging-associated vascular remodeling in human bone marrow. Aging was also associated with morphologic changes in HSPCs, myeloblasts, and promyelocytes, which were smaller in younger individuals versus those of intermediate or older age. Findings from the study further suggest that the spatial localization of HSPCs and other hematopoietic elements is not random, as HSPCs were significantly enriched near CD34-positive vascular elements and bone trabeculi. Interestingly, evidence for a potential megakaryocytic niche in human bone marrow was also uncovered. That backs up observations from preclinical models. Specifically, investigators found that HSPCs and myeloblasts localized proximal to megakaryocytes, and this was especially true in younger subjects. Finally, investigators detected six unique cell communities, which varied in terms of their cellular constituents and structural features, including CD34-positive vasculature, bone trabeculi, and fat. Taken together, investigators say, these findings suggest that human hematopoiesis undergoes a topographic remodeling that is associated with aging, and at a broader level, they show the potential of newer technologies to elucidate the spatial biology of human bone marrow based on archival tissue specimens. In a commentary on this study, Oscar Brook from the University of Helsinki in Finland say the authors have designed and applied a set of advanced computational models to develop a rich and unique resource on the anatomy of human hematopoiesis. By comparison, Brook says, tree-fine biopsies capture only a glimpse of the bone marrow composition. Intriguingly, he adds, these results indicate that a distinct megakaryocyte niche could modulate HSPC activity in young marrows. That raises new questions that require further study such as whether megakaryocytes could protect HSPCs from genetic damage. This study may not have immediate clinical implications. However, Brooke says, it shows that the location of at least some hematopoietic cells in the bone marrow are not random, and it further shows that hematopoiesis is remodeled with age. Finally, it's possible that spatial information could be useful in the evaluation of hematologic malignancies, alongside conventional analysis based on cell morphology, histopathology, flow cytometry, karyotyping, and genomics. In that way, information such as the proximity of two cells or structures could point toward important intracellular signaling activity, and that might translate into treatment biomarkers or prognostic information that is clinically relevant. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening, and Happy New Year.